welcome to another episode of The Two Old Fogey Yogis. Your hosts each week are Swami Shokananda and Reverend Pram, who between us have nearly 100 years of living la vida integral yoga. And that's what makes us Two Old Fogey Yogis. Oh my gosh. In one of our previous episodes, I put you in the role of meditation guru, which I truly see you that way because you've been at this for 50 years, like three times a day, without break, with all sincerity. It was a little aside to our Patanjali Yoga Sutra fan. (laughs) Yeah. And so... You know, I do look at you that way. And so you were very generous in sharing your technique or how you're approaching meditation currently. You started to talk about three stages and we actually got some questions from a couple of listeners who said you talked about the third stage and then you were going to revisit uh, the first two stages, but then we got carried away. We didn't get back to that. Right. So yeah, maybe go through all the three stages. Okay. Well, you started off by speaking a little bit about Patanjali. Patanjali defines yoga as yoga, chitta vritti nirodaha. Yoga is stilling the thought waves of the mind is one way to translate that. And then he says, when the mind is quiet, you can see yourself as you are. So I tried to directly follow that, quiet the mind, get the mind to shut up, and I couldn't do it. As you mentioned, I'm, I'm a disciplined man three times a day all these years, and, and I'd always leave feeling bad about myself that I, I couldn't accomplish what Patanjali was asking. This wasn't like you did it for a week and then you said, forget it, I give up. I mean, you must have. 18 years, maybe like that. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so you then, gave it the old college try. Yeah, I would call it even graduate school try. <laughs> I tried it the best I could. I tried gritting my teeth. I would grind my teeth down. I knew that if, if I just tried harder, I could get the mind to keep quiet. It was too active and it didn't work. So I don't know, Guru's grace or whatever we want to call it. After 18 years or so, I, this brainstorm came to me. You're playing the wrong game, man. Chittavitin Rodha is not something you go directly to. Mm. Observe the vrittis, the thought waves in the mind. Observe the vrittis in the chitta. Just become very awake to them. That itself is a very difficult process because most of our thought forms are underneath the surface. So to become, to make the subconscious more conscious is a challenging thing, but it, I find it very interesting. Hmm. In what way? Can you say a little bit more about that? Because, you know, you think, well, you know, it's interesting. Let me dig into this. Or, you know, what what does that feel like? Because it seems like the danger maybe could be getting kind of washed away in the story stream or something. Yeah, it's possible. That's why when I describe stage one, I'm, I'm, uh, in a few moments, you'll see how I'm careful about what, you're, what the, the downfall, the problem that you're describing. Okay. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, there's a quote from Carl Jung. I'm going to paraphrase it. I don't know if I have it exactly. He says, as long as the subconscious is functioning without your conscious awareness, you'll be creating the outcomes of your life, the circumstances of your life, and you're going to be calling it fate. You're not going to realize 
how you are attracting your own uh, destiny to you by what you're thinking, because you don't know what you're thinking. Mm. So uh, I want to at least know, they're supposedly my thoughts. Shouldn't I know <laughs> my <laughs> thoughts? You know, it seems reasonable that I should be aware of what what I call my mind is doing. Do you make a distinction between the unconscious, subconscious, conscious, or what are you calling that, you know, what you're not aware of? I don't make that maybe Freudian or psychological distinction between subconscious and unconscious. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, whatever that I wasn't aware of before, now I'm becoming more aware of it. Okay. Uh, yeah. So what's under the surface is now becoming more to the surface, you know. In stage one, Gurudev had recommended, and, I, and it made total sense to me, was don't immediately ask the mind to do something. Let the mind move around a bit. But only, I mean, that's what it does normally. Uh, so, what, so what's the difference between stage one and what I'm normally doing? In yeah. stage one, I'm becoming more aware of what the mind is doing, where as I'm moving about my day, I may not be that aware of it. And, and as I practice stage one, it will affect my awareness as I move around in my day also, no doubt about that. I call stage one preparing for dharana. Dharana is concentration. I'm not going to concentrate yet. Mm. Concentration means I'm giving some technique to the mind to do. I don't want to immediately jump to that. Uh, I want to give some space to just watch. But as you bring up, as you point out that, you know, as I'm watching, thoughts are coming. I'm trying to be a good host and greet them at the door but they tend to slip in. It's a very, it's a very um, advanced stage to be able to greet a thought as it arises. Usually it's in retrospect that I'm recognizing that thought has come. Real-time witnessing is really not the mind watching the mind. It's something else, some other awareness that's watching the mind. Yes, this is exactly like the Advaita teachings, Prana yeah, yeah. Yoga, you know, where they say it's, yeah, it's not the mind watching the mind. It's like consciousness, awareness itself is, that's what they talk about, you know, Sakshi, the witness. That's a whole, oh boy, I want to get into that stuff too, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have to recognize that most of my consciousness most of what I call I is functioning as the mind. So in stage one, I'm not, whatever I'm doing, I'm not, I don't want to go back to those first 18 years where I'm getting frustrated and, yeah. and recognize I'm a bad meditator. Maybe other people can do this. I can't do it. I don't want to fall back into that. I make it a fun thing to try to greet the, the thought as it arises. And I recognize that that's going to be a rare thing. But once the thought arises, then I want to just acknowledge it and then let it go. I don't want it. I don't want to grab onto it. I don't want it to grab onto me. I want to be able. To, that's that's the yeah. the second challenge of stage one, preparing for dharma. Is I'm going to become aware of the thought. I'm going to greet it with friendliness, or I'm going to greet it without trying to say get out of here. I'm meditating. I'm going to greet it as a, an invited guest. I'm not going to create a negative internal milieu around thinking, and then I'm going to. With that friendliness, I can, then I can say, can't stay with you. 
you know, if, particularly if something uh, has troubled me at that time, if I've had a bad interaction with someone, it'll keep popping up. That same gas keeps popping up. Mm. Like one thought, or is it sort of like the whole storyline? Oh, that happened to me the other day. And why well, it, may, it may go deeper into the story. Yeah. Maybe uh-huh. there are different variations of the story of, uh, yeah, why do they treat me that way? You know, they, we used to be friends and what happened there? You know, uh, they're so disrespectful. That it'll go all those variations of that. But the thing about the mind is that I notice that even if it keeps coming up and I keep trying to relax and detach from it, eventually a new thought will come. Just the nature of the mind. Even something that's bothering me, the mind will move to something else that's bothering me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like a series of <laughs> exactly it's a series yeah so then i reckon that oh, okay you moved on to something else okay sometimes it moves on to something more neutral which is great and now now it's a little easier to detach from it that's stage one and can you give us sort of a sense of how long do you usually is a meditation session and and how long is stage one i mean not to the minute obviously but yeah yeah, I, I do time it. Uh, that may be one thing oh. that people find odd is to time these things. But uh, in a half hour meditation, I, I spend eight minutes in stage one. Wow. I spend eight, minute, eight minutes in stage three and 14 minutes in stage two. Oh, okay. <laughs> Got to hear the science of this, but okay. <laughs> go, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So once I've done this uh, for eight minutes, and it's, it's, it can be challenging to do this stage one, but uh, I, I like it. The thing about my mind is it may be more on the rajasic, the restless side than many people. So I like the fact that I have three different things I can do in a half hour. Yeah. I'm not saying I would get so bored with one thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do in those Zen meditations where they're sitting there for like 14 hours, you know? Observing the breath. I don't know. <laughs> I've never done it and <laughs> I'm not looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm not saying that that is what they, I, you know, they get up and they do walking meditations and other things, yeah. but yeah, yeah. yeah I, okay. I like, I like this too. This, this sounds really good. It is fun. Yeah. Then after eight minutes of that, my mind is more ready to be given something to do. Hopefully it's something that it is happy to focus on. For me, it's, it's a mantra repetition, what we call japa. Okay, so in stage one, you're not using a mantra. You're, you're observing. observing. You're becoming aware of the thought. You're welcoming them in, trying to just be as neutral as possible, just watching and then watching them as they go out. So ta-ta, bye-bye yeah. to them. Okay. Yeah. Watching the hours sometimes may not be possible. Sometimes I have to put a little bit more effort in letting it go. I don't know if that makes sense, because if you try too hard to get rid of a thought, it'll yeah. stick more. Take some skill to let go of a series of thinking that really is close to your egocentric consciousness. Mm. You have to know how to skillfully, if you try too hard, that energy of trying becomes the very force that it sticks to you. If you don't try at all, it seems like it. I can't just drop it. But what happens for me a lot is that I'll, I'll be like you. I'm observing, you know, the thought walks in, trots itself in. Sometimes it trots itself out. But a lot of the time, I just suddenly become aware, oh, I've been thinking about something and I've, got, I've gotten completely absorbed in that thought. Right. Yeah, that's how it often happens to me also. 
hopefully I can shorten that time of being lost in the thought. I think that you mentioned I've been doing this a long time. I think that's true. I, I, the time I'm lost and unconscious of what the mind is doing has gotten shorter. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And when I become aware that I've been lost in the thought, I don't beat myself up anymore. That's, that's a great relief also. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then I'm ready for stage two, which is Dharana. Now I'm going to concentrate. Okay. I mean, I'm going to give my mind a technique, something to do. And now you said this is the longest one. This is the 14 minute segment. Right. Okay. I do 108 repetitions of the mantra. It can go anywhere between like 11, sometimes as many as 20 minutes. If I really, if I really get lost in it a bit, but it's 14 minutes about the it's average. About- about and that's about 108 repetitions. 108 repetitions of the mantra. I have a three-syllable mantra, and that's about how long it takes me. And are you using a mala or some way to count this? Or how are you doing a count? Or Oh, yeah, you mentioned something in it when we were talking in the meditation episode, uh, the prior one, that you'd use a count. But is that what you mean with the mantra? Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, yeah, I, I used the mala for many years, and... I would get very so attached to my mala. I'd wear it, wear it, put it under my pillow. Then it would break. The beaches scatter all over the place. <laughs> I get a new mala. I have that for three years. I, I must have lost maybe ten dollars over the years. <laughs> I just couldn't handle. I couldn't handle the emotional pain <laughs> of broken malas. Oh my God! Broken. My mala broke my heart. <laughs> I know. I know. Someone should write a country western song. <laughs> So uh, now I use my fingers, uh, uh, and I, I count 36 three times. And um, some of that is with lip movement. That seems to help me to stay more present. I'm, moving my, I'm not making an audible sound, but I'm moving by my lips. And some of it, I don't want to get attached to that lip movement part, so some of it is just mentally repeating the mantra. Okay, but do you, have you sort of systematized that? Do you start out with a verbal out loud repetition, then move to the lips and then to the silent? Or how do you handle yeah. it? Because, uh, you know, all my life, adult life, I've lived in ashrams with group meditation. I can't do it out loud. I'm not, I don't do it out loud during that meditation time. When I'm walking around or dancing in the house, then I'll, I can sing it. When I'm doing my meditation practice, yeah, it is systematized. Two-thirds is with lip movement and one third is mental. I may change that as I as my mind gets more subtle, but right now that's what I've stuck to. Two thirds is with lip movement, one third is mental. Mental doesn't mean in my brain. It means all every cell of my body and also my pranic body and my mental body is vibrating with the mantra. Whoa. Yeah. Sometimes when I say mental, people think I'm talking about in my brain. Yeah, that's what I thought you were talking about. So yeah. what is what did it start out that way and then it just sort of it kind of morphed or evolved into this whole pranic thing that you That's a good question. Um uh, let's think about how that happened. Yeah, it must have been some kind of evolution where I recognize it just became obvious to me why why do I want to repeat it in my head? You know, this little part of my one seventh of my body. Uh, that's not where I wanted to go. I wanted to be vibrating every physical cell. But then I realized, I think I evolved from there. Why just the physical body? That's, that's pretty external. But let's get every, every part of me involved with this vibration, this sacred vibration. But it is more subtle. And therefore, more subtle means more powerful. But if your mind is not 
as concentrated on it, then it loses some of the power. So the, this movement toward lift movement uh, is a recent development in my part. I would say in the last year and a half or so, I've started using this lift movement, maybe two years now. And I find that it does keep me more present with the vibration of the mantra. And the count also does help me to, I can't drift off too far and start planning things. I can do a, I can do a lot of things with my mind and repeat the mantra. But if I'm counting and repeating the mantra, then I can't drift off as much. I have to stay more aware. And yeah. what I do with the mantras, I, I, don't, I don't just feel the, the mantra. I feel each, each syllable of the mantra it, it has its own, it's a mantra in itself. So every syllable, my mantra isn't, isn't this, but like Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. And I'm every syllable. So my mind is, is engaged as, as it possibly can be. Thoughts still come up. I don't make thoughts a problem. But in this practice, particularly with the count, uh, I would say I can, I can be aware of thought very quickly. Sometimes I can't be aware exactly what the thought was, but sometimes actually I can be aware of the thought. I can't go into a stream of thinking very easily in stage two. Wow. There's too much focus to, to start to drift off and think about, yeah, I feel hurt about this and that. I can't do it. Uh, I'm too engaged in what I'm doing. Wow, that sounds amazing. Because like when I think of silent repetition, I do think that you're repeating it with a mind. And I think, wow, if my mind was filled with a mantra instead of all the thoughts, wouldn't that be a good thing? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what thoughts are exactly. I mean, I, I think they are somehow related to the brain cells and the electrical, chemical interaction that takes place within the brain. There's something around that that creates a thought. So that may be true about thought. I don't know if it's totally true. It may not be the whole picture. The thought may come from also, that may be the expression of the thought through the brain cell, but it may be comes from some place deeper, more subtle than that. But the vibration of the mantra definitely comes from a more subtle place. And I'm trying to resonate from that more subtle place. Okay, well, I guess the question really is that, like you were saying, thoughts, what are they? Maybe they're like electrical energy sparks. I mean, they seem to be, yeah, it's kind of, I've heard a Buddhist teacher talk about like a bonfire. You know, you have a bonfire that's pretty raging fire and then sparks will fly up from it. So Mm -hmm. it's like we have this mind energy that does come from, you know, whatever the... yeah you know, the neurons, whatever firing. And then the thoughts are like these sparks. Mm -hmm. And the problem that we have as humans is that rather than naturally having the sparks fly up into the sky, and then they would like, in a sense, self-liberate and just end there, we somehow grab them back and start other little bonfires from them, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like, I really like that you don't have an antagonistic relationship with your thoughts. Yeah. From everything that I've read, that's definitely not the way to go. Right. So when you're talking about mental repetition, I really just thought that's in the mind. Like, you know, you're filling the mind with the mantra. So in, in other words, snuffing out space for thoughts. But that really, like you're sort of alluding to, is not really the purpose of mantra meditation. It is to sort of have your whole, all your koshas, like we would say in yoga, you know, the subtle 
bodies all come into alignment with who we really are, which is pure consciousness. You expressed it so perfectly, yeah. That's what I'm trying to vibrate and get all my, all parts of my being, you can use the Sanskrit word koshas, to be vibrating in a way that something beyond what I normally consider me Mm. can experience itself. Because isn't that as beginners, we sort of think, we come into meditation thinking that, oh, the purpose of meditation is just going to quiet my mind. I'm going to feel peaceful. But the real story seems to be by having this practice over time and doing it diligently with full sincerity, it is leading you just naturally into a place where it's an experience of the mind dissolving and almost like it's natural that you're having difficulty finding the words for this because it's it's totally beyond words, but I've heard it expressed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's possible, (laughs) but even we shouldn't think that expression be the thing. But what really confused me is that I thought I'm going into meditation thinking what I'm doing is stilling the mind. The outcome is I have less thoughts or less disruptive thoughts, or I'm just sit in peace or have some mystical experience. But from what I'm reading in Yana Yoga and from what Gurudev says is literally what happens is that the mind fades to the background and that, that witness consciousness kind of almost absorbs the mind. It subsumes the mind Mm -hmm. and it's just this like flow into just pure consciousness. The way I said it last, last time about when we talked about meditation was it's, it's a sleep. It's like going to sleep, but a sattvic sleep. So when you say absorbed in consciousness, it's similar to sleep. You, we, we get absorbed into something, but in meditation, it's conscious letting go into consciousness. Mm, yeah. But, you know, I was, I was wondering, you know, okay, so I'm getting good at focusing my mind. As the years went by, I could see that I'm getting better at becoming more focused and concentrated. And I was thinking, so, so what? What does that have to do with spirituality? I have a very focused mind. That's I do. It's like a good thing, having a focused mind, right? <laughs> I mean, it could be good or bad, right? <laughs> Depends <laughs> Depends what you're focusing on, but yeah, there are people who have had really bad people who had amazing mental control. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was just, you know, I told you I was watching the last dance about the Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls. And this one man said something very interesting. I think he was a reporter. He said, yeah, yeah. Michael had amazing abilities, uh, natural abilities, plus uh, his uh, acquired abilities and then the will. But the thing that made him something extraordinary, almost mystical, he, he knew how to be totally present. He never worried about the next moment or the past moment. He, only, he knew how to stay in the present moment. And that was something that you didn't see in basketball, maybe any sport. You know, uh, so that's an example of, of someone who was able to focus on exactly what the moment was. And I think I'm getting better at that. But I was trying to understand, does that make me a spiritual person having a focused mind? Not necessarily. 
But I do see, I've come to believe the importance that you can't really easily go beyond the mind until you can say, it's my mind. I, can, it's, I control this mind. I have, I have some mastery over this mind. You can't really say goodbye to the mind as long as the mind has you by the throat and it's <laughs> laughing at you that you think you're going to get beyond it. It might even give you a taste of what it means to get beyond it. But even that is a trick of the mind. <laughs> Yeah, because Gurudev always referred to the, you know, like monkey mind. So what's the nature of a monkey? It just does what it does, just all over the place, right? The monkey mind is all over the place. And, you you know, and then he would give the example of giving a curly hair to a demon to to try, (laughs) you know, to try to make straight. And that's kind of like what the mantra is, is just to keep the mind occupied, maybe so that, you know, you can sink a little deeper into the experience of your exactly yeah yeah so i sort of wrestle with that idea of if the nature of the mind is just to be you know like in nature as monkeys do then what the heck am i going to do about that i mean i guess to some extent i can try wrestle with that a bit but i think for a lot of the buddhists like they just sort of put aside them they're like i'm not even going there yeah you know, I'm just not, you know, there's just nothing there for me. All I'm going to do is utilize the mind to sort of investigate the mind, you know, and to analyze and, you know, be aware and just notice when I'm aware. So they'll utilize the mind like that. What are your thoughts about that? And then, of course, I want, do want to get to if there's more to stage two and then what happens to stage three. Yeah, I don't think you can utilize the mind until you reach a certain mastery the mind is utilizing you. You better cop to that. Yeah. Uh, and let's get real here. Uh, so it, I find that it takes quite an amount of time. And I don't know if it's just time, but all those three things, a long time without break, <laughs> with all CEO, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. to, to be able to utilize the mind uh, in, in a skillful way. And that's what it may be what I'm talking about by Okay, so I, I have some mental focus now. I can tell the mind to do this and stay with this, not move into the past and not get worried about things I messed up, not get anxious about the future, which is really my past some scars projecting into the future. Uh, it, is, it is bringing me into more into the now, which is where my spirit is. So I do see the benefit in asking the mind to stick with one thing, being more aware of when it's moving, not making that into a problem, coming back to that one thing. That's why I call it dharna. It's, that's, what, that's what dharna is. Yeah. It, the mind is moving, you're bringing it back. It's moving, you're bringing it back. And I don't have much more to say about that, except it's some kind of combination between alertness and relaxation. If you're too alert, trying to pounce on it, uh, you're not relaxed. I don't think you can go deep. If you're too relaxed, then uh, you're not really there watching what's going on. Yeah, there's an expression, uh, not too tight, not too loose. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's some kind of, well, the way I say it to myself is you're alert and you're relaxed, and you're watching that, that balance. Where am I on the spectrum here of alertness and relaxation? You know? Okay, and that's in, the, in, that's in the dharana. Concentration is a Sanskrit term for concentration. Dhyana is the term for meditation. Yeah, so I haven't started meditating yet. So I, I've spent eight minutes, and then another 14 minutes, 20, 22 minutes, <laughs> and I, I haven't started meditating yet. 
Okay. I mean, stage one has some discipline, but stage two is where now uh, I'm setting some parameters. I'm giving the mind something to do. I'm asking it to stick with it, but it should be a relaxed discipline. It shouldn't feel repressive. And ideally, you know, it's called Ishtadevata. You know, it's something that you love. Ishtadevata means uh, David is the light. Ishta is the way your heart naturally wants to gravitate toward the light, your path to the light. So you do whatever practice you do in stage two, you hopefully you can get your mind to really buy into it. So in other words, you're saying that it doesn't necessarily have to be a mantra for stage two. It could be a, another practice or what could you yeah. clarify? Yeah. So the Buddhists more watch the breath. Vipassana uh, just watches their experience, whatever you want to do in that stage. Uh, you could focus on a photo of somebody, a flower, you know, even a concept of a infinite sky you have to choose but and you can you know play around for a while but then you should settle down with one one thing yeah so i've settled down with mantra it's a i like it because i you know i can carry it around with me uh i do believe that it has some very uh powerful way of connecting me beyond the mind so i've settled with mantra and i'm going to stick with that yeah, and maybe we should, again, for, for listeners new to meditation, yeah. that maybe you could uh, give a couple of mantras people could start with. And then also, if, you, if someone is feeling more drawn to the integral yoga tradition, uh, we do offer initiation where you'll receive a personal mantra and get some you know, guidance and instruction from yeah. any of the integral yoga centers. But for you know, for the interim, if someone wants to try it, what, what are a few that you could suggest maybe? Yeah. In our tradition, uh, integral yoga tradition, I started out with Hari Om. I loved Hari Om. Very powerful. You know, Om itself, it's probably the most powerful mantra, but because it's so subtle and powerful, it can be disorienting. If you really get into just pure Om, it could, un, you can get a little bit untethered. So most mantras have either a suffix or a prefix. Like prefix would be Hari Om. A suffix would be Om Shanti. It could be Om Namah Shivaya. I would say the, the three big ones from in integral yoga tradition are Hari Om, Om Shanti, and Om Namah Shivaya. Shiva would be the, the pure auspiciousness. You're that absolute purity, you're letting that manifest through you in the Om Namah Shivaya. I don't know. Is there any other ones that you can think of that? No, I think those three are, are yeah, they're they're good. They're really great. Yeah, yeah. Start. Yep. And then yeah, then once you feel more committed to a tradition, most traditions will initiate you in some way. Most many of them into a mantra. I like that the mantra we use in integral yoga is the one that Gurudev used, Swami Sachinanda used. I like to feel that I'm vibrating in his spirit. Nice. And so when you get to the at the end of stage two now, you know, you're coming to the end of your, you know, 14 minutes or so. so, where are you hoping to wind up at that point so that you can go into stage three? Yeah, I stopped hoping. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have a lot of hope about, about that. Now, whatever it is, it's fine. I hope that I can be fine with whatever it is if I'm going to hope anything. <laughs> that's, that's a good hope to have. <laughs> I like that. If it was a picture book story, you know, uh, then stage one and stage two are like knocking at a door. And stage three, someone answered the door and said, please come in. And it doesn't make sense for me to keep knocking at that point. The knocking doesn't serve its function anymore. So someone is 
that someone who let me in is let me into this place where my mind is fairly poised. It's not rushing in a direction, past, future, uh, attraction, repulsion. I can't say that I often get there. Whatever my state of mind is, after those 108 repetitions of the mantra, I move to stage three, which is I call, I don't even call it, I don't even call it dhyana meditation. I call it preparing to meditate, preparing for dhyana. Now, why do you think of it in that? <laughs> is, it, is it not to disappoint yourself if meditation doesn't ensue? <laughs> yeah, I don't want, it's not to, not to jig myself to say, oh, see, you can't meditate. Because <laughs> I, I think meditation is not something you can actually do at all. So I just say, I can just set the ground, you know, I can plant the seed, put some water there, maybe some miracle grow or something that helps. <laughs> and then, I, then I just leave it alone and maybe yana meditation happens. And, you know, some people will say if the mind is still really restless at that point, it's better to stick to stage two, just keep your technique going. I don't, I don't practice that way. Whatever my mind is doing at the end of those 14 minutes or so, 108 repetitions, I want to now take that somewhat collected mind and I want to do something that, I want to let it go into something else. I don't want to stay with a practice, a technique. I want to move to the place where thought initiates. Who is thinking all this thought? Is there some, is there a thinker there behind all this? I'm not interested in the thought now. The thought is, is the outcome. What is the cause? Is there a cause? So stage three, the way I described it, I think last time we talked, is like Swami Shokananda is a clenched fist, a tension in the field of consciousness. I've grabbed some consciousness and I say, this is me, Swami Shokananda. And I'm doing Swami Shokananda by clenching my fist. And now stage three is I'm relaxing my hand. I don't call taking a fist to opening really doing something. I'm undoing the clinching of Swami Shokananda. It's the hardest stage and it can be a little bit frightening because uh, that fist is, is everything I know about Swami Shokananda. I don't know that open-handed fellow if even there's someone exists at that point but the little taste I've got of this open-handed experience, yeah I don't think of it as, as the same me as the clinched fist person. But there is an eye there. It has at least a little bit I've gotten. It has the, the, the smell and the, the, it has a scent of blissfulness to it. Mm. So there's something that's a very attractive that makes the fearfulness of non-existence worth exploring. Oh, that's <laughs> blue. Because you just expressed that Satchid Ananda, which in Advaita Vedanta, you know, Jnana Yoga, that's the central teaching. That's our nature. So existence or being, consciousness, bliss. Bliss. You just, ex you just described. <laughs> I don't know if I quite did justice with the words, but I'm doing yeah. my best to give a taste for that. Yeah. Oh, so beautiful. <laughs> so in this stage three, so when you're entering stage three, you've really closed the door to stage two. You're not going to repeat the mantra. You're not going to be looking at the thoughts and paying attention to those. Maybe what's the terrain of this stage that. Yeah. It's hard to talk about. Yeah. The thoughts may still come in that stage. They do come. Not, not me. I, Thoughts, though, maybe they've slowed down, but thoughts will come. 
And I drop the content of the thought ruthlessly. I don't care how genius the thought is. I don't know how, I don't care if it's touching some deep trauma that I haven't looked at. Whatever it is, I'm not, the content, now is not the time for that. This is not a psychological place now. I'm not dealing with the psychology of Swami Shukananda. Right. So if I drop the content, there seems to be some prana there. I don't know if that makes sense, but a thought, you know, some, as we say, some chemical or electrical impulse created a thought. I'm dropping the content and there's something there. And I use that something to, it's not a technique. It's, it may sound like one, but it doesn't feel like a technique. I'm not going back to stage two, where by dropping the content and feeling this energy, the energy dissolves the membrane of separateness of Swami or Shokananda. Whereas if I try to do something, it's I trying to get rid of I, and the I just gets thicker. But if I let the energy of the thought dissolve the illusion, I would call it, of separateness, it's my imagination. It is, you can call it a technique, uh, but it feels like the, the closest thing I can come to not be a doer in trying to get beyond the scope of my awareness, that my current awareness. If I try to do that, it seems that I always get stuck somewhere in me, small me. So that's the best I can do. And that's why I call preparing for dhyana. Occasionally, I'll hit like, like what could be called pay dirt, you know, like, oh, there it is. Mm. And it's all those 50 years, three times a day. This is why I did this. <laughs> it's all working. <laughs> I didn't waste that time. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so great. That seems like a perfect, a perfect ending for this episode of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. <laughs> well, I can say you have so inspired me. I mean, man, I'm committing to my meditation even more now. I just want to thank you on behalf of the universe uh, of meditators, anyone who's been struggling like I have over the years, because you shared so intimately the interior journey that you have gone on for these 50 years. And that is such an incredible gift for mm. you to share. And I'm so <laughs> grateful. A deep bow to you, my brother. Wow. Thank you, Paranjali. Uh, your skillful way of helping me to find ways to tap into what I tried to articulate was so beautiful. So. I bow to you, my dear sister. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. But I think you express yourself just fine on your own. But it was nice to be along for the ride. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, folks. Until next time. Next time. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and will join us again for next week's episode. Please do follow and subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And for more information about everything Integral Yoga, you can go to IntegralYoga.org. Om Shanti.